Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Boy, an action-packed news day today. Ukraine keeps making gains in their counteroffensive. Elliot Tepper, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Carleton University, is going to join us and talk about that. On the home front, let's talk Ontario politics. We'll talk with Andrew Perez, a senior consultant at Hill and Knowlton. And all this political talk brings up the question of toxic partisanship within Canadian politics. Daryl Brooker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, says that a certain level of toxicity on both the right and the left has always been present in Canadian politics, but it's more visible and more harmful than ever before. And Christopher Alexander, president of Remax Canada, will explain the concept of the 15-minute city and whether or not it's part of the solution to our housing crisis. All coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Some new and rapidly changing developments happening in the war in Ukraine over the last uh, two or three days specifically. Of course, we know that Prime Minister Trudeau was over there last weekend uh, talking to President Zelensky and, and uh, some other uh, public events as well. Uh, but the counteroffensive, the uh, oft-talked-about counteroffensive, seems to be rolling on, and there seems to be uh, some early successes uh, with the uh, Ukraine counteroffensive. Joining us to uh, give us an assessment as to what's happening, uh, please to welcome back to the program, Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Uh, Elliot, always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us today. Well, thank you. Good morning, Bill. As, and, and to you as well. I'm, I'm looking at, at some of the reports over the last 24 hours, especially here, Elliot, and, and I guess I'm trying to connect the dots. It, it looks as if the uh, the Ukrainian forces are starting to, to retake some of the towns and, uh, that, that had recently been held by uh, Russian forces in situations like that. Uh, and in, in a parallel story here, I'm, talk, I'm, I'm being told about uh, those tanks that the Americans and, and the Canadians and other countries had promised some time ago uh, are apparently around the battlefield now. They, they've, they've trained the soldiers. They've trained them in the uses of this. And as far as I can ascertain here, they seem to be a factor in this counteroffensive. Is that, is that your assessment? Yes. Well, it is indeed an evolving story. And sometimes it's, is it half full or half empty in terms of assessing, you know, how it's going. Mm-hmm. I think what's happening is um, there is a pre-major counteroffensive underway. I, I was framing this earlier as the Russians are trying to do a counter counteroffensive by uh, blowing up that dam and by massive and repeated, and they're still continuing now, missile and drone attacks all across, all across uh, Ukraine. But Ukraine, in turn, was preparing in advance of this push by opening up a new front inside Russia. And we've got some early reports coming in now that an oil refinery was hit deep inside Russia. And was it done by, by missile? Was it done by partisans who are there? We aren't sure. But there's more and more activity opening up a front inside Russia as part of the counteroffensive. And now what seems to be happening is there's probes, Bill, uh, in various places up and down that 1,000-kilometer front line, which has been heavily, heavily fortified by, by the um, Russians, knowing in advance that this counteroffensive is coming. And now we're seeing that I think what's happening is that the uh, Ukrainians are probing in various places, several different places, and they've not committed the bulk of those uh, armaments you just referred to. Some uh, tanks are being used, but the bulk of the armor has not yet been committed. The uh, probes are going on to see uh, and micro analysts there on the field on the Ukrainian side say, Look, you know what's really happening is 
the Ukrainian forces are indeed attacking here and attacking there, but it's very strategic because what they're doing is trying to cut off. Uh, in the case of Bakhmut, they're trying to surround it. And then around Kherson, around actually Zaporizhia area, there's a bulge in the line there where the Russians are have a forward position. And the villages on two sides of that salient, of that bulge, that's what's being retaken. Uh, and that will force now the possibility, of course, that'll be cut, you know, they'll be surrounded and cut off. That's forcing the Russians to pull some of their forces away from other areas to protect those areas, making the areas that's less protected now more vulnerable. So that seems to be the name of the game going on. And, and I want to ask about the Russian perspective on this. I mean, you know, to, to hear them talk about everything's going swimmingly. Uh, we do know the story that we saw last week. As a matter of fact, I found out about it a day or two before it broke uh, from uh, a brother-in-law who was actually in, in holidaying in Cuba. And they're they're actually recruiting Cubans uh, to go and fight for the Russian army. And I guess you get citizenship and a couple of other perks if you get in there. And apparently he, he was mentioning there's a lot of uptake on that. And we've subsequently seen stories about that. Uh, so they, they need bodies uh, on the battlefield right now. Uh, and, of course, the other element to that that question is is the Wagner group as well. And I don't know where their heads are on this, Elliot. I mean, you know, they've been asked to swear allegiance to Putin, and they've basically given him the, the bird and said no. Uh, but they're hardly on the other side. They just don't like him, do they? Which is the who and which is the him in this case? Yeah. Well, Putin, obviously, they just don't like the guy. Yeah. Uh, the whole issue of the role of the Wagner group is in itself – were there a closer examination? Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner group, as you know, claimed to be the only effective fighting force. We took Bakhmut, but now the, 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 you and I have talked about this, I think, the open feuding at the very top of the military and security apparatus of Russia while the war is going on is a notable feature of the war itself. This is news that <laughs> the head of the Wagner group is openly feuding with the Minister of Defense and with the general who's on overall charge. The counter on that now is that the uh, Ministry of Defense has said that all of these volunteer forces, meaning the mercenary groups, uh, and, and Shoigu himself has one of those, uh, now they're all going to have to volunteer uh, to be rolled into the regular armed forces, no longer to be autonomous. Uh, or technically autonomous, no longer mercenary groups, but part of the, they have signed contracts. And the head of the Wagner group said, Pogosian said, no, I'm not going to sign that contract. And uh, we know that there was actually fighting between the two groups around um, the regular army and the Wagner group. And he apparently is campaigning quietly all across Russia now as a, as a politician. But that doesn't seem to worry Mr. Putin. So there's a lot of stuff happening intra-elite uh, dissension over the conduct of the war, that is a notable feature of what's going on. Because you mentioned that to us in a previous discussion, which I thought was rather fascinating, uh, that, you know, they, they looked at this guy as, okay, he's the head of the mercenaries, but he has political ambitions. I, I, I guess that's really not surprising when you look at it from that perspective, uh, that if Putin is going to go in one way, shape, or form, he'd like to be considered as, as the next guy up, wouldn't he? Well, apparently, and uh, that would be very bad news for everybody. There's no reason to think yeah. that the head of this bloody mercenary group would be an improvement over Putin, uh, that he would indeed be uh, calling for a mass mobilization, you know, basically martial law. 
right now, remember the um, <laughs> Mr. Putin was is desperately trying to to go back to what you said earlier. Desperately trying to find fighters because he does not want to once again call up troops. He called up the three hundred thousand, an additional three hundred thousand to invade um, Ukraine, and he doesn't want to do that again because then that brings the war home to the to the ethnic Russian heartland, and that's the last thing he wants. So he wants to avoid that. I don't think Prigozhin would have any qualms. So we are in a we are in a situation where what happens on the battlefront is going to be crucial, and what's happening on the battlefront is by no means an open and shut case. And we have to remind ourselves. I think you and I have talked about this. That the the catchword here, when you look at what's going on, is the counteroffensive should not be viewed as an act, you know, a big single strike, but as a process, and it could go on for a very long time. As the, as the Ukrainians husband their resources and inflict maximum damage on the Russians over a period of time until finally there's a weak spot found where there might be a big push. Uh, very quickly, I want to touch on nuclear weapons, which seems to come up every couple of days now. Uh, Putin's already said that he's going to be sending these things over around Belarus uh, for the, their own defense. Uh, and I know he's, some people are suggesting this is all a bluff because he's been talking about this since the war began. Uh, and, you know, he wouldn't dare do that because he, he would incur the, the wrath of NATO if he did that. But does he have total control over that stuff, Elliot? Or, I mean, if he sends those down to Belarus, um, are, are there rogue elements there that may just decide, yeah, let's, let's use these things? Well, I think the rogue elements might be there to say, no, uh, we are uh. going to do what you want. Now, there's, it's very clear that those are going to be Russian tactical nuclear weapons. And you and I have discussed this. Tactical is, is a meaningless term. You're nuclear or you're not. Mm-hmm. And you better not use it. But uh, this, they are being moved in. They'll be strictly under Russian command and control. The whole question is, if Mr. Putin said, yes, I do want to use them, would, would those orders be obeyed? Because there's a lot of reluctance. I think the word has been very clearly delivered to Mr. Putin by the U.S. and I think probably by China as well. Do not use nuclear, tactical nuclear weapons. Do not go that route. Uh, I think the U.S. has basically said bluntly to him, but off the record, where we can't see it, it'll be the end of you personally, Mr. Putin, if you introduce nuclear weapons in any form. But, you know, if Crimea, for example, becomes the target of this counteroffensive that we're talking about, and there's a threat to uh, Crimea actually being lost to Russia, that might indeed uh, be something that Mr. Putin would be tempted to counter with mm-hmm. a nuclear weapon. This counteroffensive and the war and the whole possibility of nukes, this is not a, this is not a, a game that we watch on TV. This is, this is the possibility of World War III and uh, a nuclear war between NATO, which just had massive, <laughs> a massive air display showing you know, the Russians, you know, you can have 250 airplanes flying at you at any moment. All of this is, these are very high stakes. It's, uh, we wish the Ukrainians well, but um, when Trudeau was there, our prime minister was there, he said publicly what Zelensky has also been saying publicly, you are fighting our war for us, and we are going to support you as long as it takes with whatever you need. And I think that is the situation. Elliot Tepper, uh, Professor Emeritus at Carleton. Uh, as always, Elliot, thank you so much. Uh, ever-changing information coming out of there. It's always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks for this today. Oh, good to talk to you, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about Ontario politics. And, and well, the, as we know, the Liberals are, are the, 
party right now that's looking for a leader of uh, the NDP with Mark Stiles as their new leader. Uh, both, of course, their previous leaders resigned right after the last provincial election. And the liberals, uh, well, they've got a process in place right now. They, they're talking about doing this thing by about December or so and have the new leader in place. But there's a lot of well, political darts being tossed around uh, about some of those candidates. Uh, uh, Nat Smith, uh, Erskine Smith, rather, uh, a f- MP who is one of the first runners to throw his hat into the race here, uh, is starting to uh, send out policy ideas about housing and things of this nature. And uh, the other one that, that's getting an awful lot of criticism and an awful lot of attention right now is Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie, um, who uh, seems to be the focus of a lot of the uh, the conservative attacks right now, which may indicate that, you know, maybe there's something to that candidacy. So what is happening here and, and how is this going to impact uh, the, the election, which I know is still a couple of years away, but nonetheless, uh, it's the players that usually can make an election or break an election, I suppose. I want to bring uh, Andrew Perez into the conversation. Andrew is a senior consultant with Hill and Knowlton Strategies uh, and a constant and, and very welcome contributor to this program. And he's also a volunteer for the Ontario Liberal Party. So uh, first of all, Andrew, I'm glad you could join us again. Thanks for being on the program this morning. Uh, good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. And now, now of course, because I know you've, you've volunteered for the Liberal Party, I'm expecting some some salacious insights into what's going on here, okay? That backroom stuff from you. Uh, and the first thing I want to talk to you about here is, is a column I sure you saw last week uh, from Sabrina Mardot that talks about Bonnie Crombie. Uh, the headline is, Ontario Liberals would do well to avoid what she calls the Queen NIMBY becoming party leader. And uh, this goes has to, something to do with, uh, with Mayor Crombie's uh, policies, uh, especially at the municipal level. Uh, your reaction to it, and, and what, if any, impact is this going to have on Mayor Crombie's decision? Yeah, you know, I saw that piece, um, and, um, you know, there's no doubt that we are living in a housing affordability crisis that is really impacting my generation, the millennial generation. Um, you know, my parents, when they were married in 1981, they were able to buy their first home immediately. Um, that that dream, that ticket to the middle class uh, simply isn't a reality today. Um, and so I do think, you know, it is incumbent upon policymakers and the, and political leaders um, to make this a number one priority. But, you know, I think there's a lot of misinformation in that piece. When I look at Mayor Crombie's record, she's been mayor for um, almost nine years now. Um, I know that, you know, construction, housing construction in Mississauga is at an, a 30-year high right now. There's 40 cranes in the sky. It's the second highest number of of cranes in the sky in Canada and and the fourth highest in North America. And that, you know, over the past three years since 2020, um, 80% of all housing development applications um, that were submitted to the city of Mississauga under Mayor Crombie's leadership uh, were approved by the council and the mayor. Um, And so, you know, housing is being built in Mississauga. Uh, The mayor, one of her great strengths is her ability to work with different levels of government. She's worked closely with Mayor, uh, uh, with uh, Premier Doug Ford, who indicated last year that he wants to build, the province wants to build 1.5 million new homes by the year 2031. And um, as part of a a new housing plan that the mayor released earlier this year in 2023, um, the plan will 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 allow Mississauga to build 120,000 uh, homes as part of that plan to build 1.5 million homes. So I well, think let me, let me the reality on the so, ground and the mayor's yeah, record. Yeah, let me let me just ju- I want to jump in and talk itself. about that. 
because the the concern here, of course, is is the long term impacts on that. And you know, we we're going to criticize and, and analyze uh, the the Ford policy, of course, uh, for the next little while here to see just how effective it really is. We already know by their own numbers that they haven't even reached the uh, uh, the goals that they had suggested for themselves for this year. But let me swing back uh, to Bonnie Crombie themselves. Now she's not officially in the race. She's she's doing an investigative. Uh, plan right now, and she's talking to people, as, as most politicians do, before they finally make a, a decision on this. Uh, you know her. Uh, you know the campaign. I know you've been talking to some of the people that are supporting her right now. Is it a matter of when she announces or if she announces? I mean, the mayor, you know, there's an announcement happening tomorrow, a special announcement um, late tomorrow afternoon. Um, so we'll see, we'll see what is announced there. I'm I'm waiting with bated bated breath like everyone else. Um, but look, you know, there's currently um, three candidates in this in this leadership race. Um, I would say to date, the leadership race, and I know we've discussed this at length in the past, Bill you know, really hasn't garnered a great deal of media coverage, excitement and buzz, even among liberals. It's kind of been under the radar. Now, part of the reason is that the rules weren't actually released until uh, mid-April of this year. And so candidates until that point weren't able to formally jump in. Um, But now with all the speculation around Mayor Crombie's potential entry into this race, um, this race has just been brought up to another level in terms of media coverage and excitement. I speak to liberals uh, every day, and there's a lot of excitement around uh, Mayor Crombie because this is someone that has a strong political brand, has served at the municipal level in government, has led a municipal government, actually has a strong record at that level, um, and it, and is a strong woman that I think can appeal to a diversity of liberals and swing voters across the province. And maybe we can get more into that. But I really think that she's an appealing candidate. And I do hope that she will throw her hat in the ring tomorrow. Okay, but here's the $64 million question, I guess, for every political party. I mean, it's the liberals turn now, but others have had you know to, to face this at some point too. Do you pick a leader who's great on policy, uh, who's likable, or do you lean more towards somebody who can just beat the incumbent. I mean, let's face it, you've had Doug Ford, who's won two majority governments, actually increased his majority in the last election. Uh, and uh, if he decides to run again, and we don't know one way or another how that's going to happen, uh, it, it's a monumental task to knock off an incumbent, especially an incumbent that's that's uh, enjoying two majority governments. Even though his personal popularity numbers aren't doing that well, uh, they weren't last time either. He ended up winning a huge majority. So is it, are the liberals looking for somebody who can, well, as the Toronto Star uh, characterize it, a dragon slayer? Well, look, I think it's, it's I think it's all of those things, Bill. I, 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 I've always said, you know, to win an election, you need, you know, uh, an, a, an effective policy platform that resonates, that's not too in the weeds, that everyday people can understand. You need strong political organization, that is to say, you know, strong candidates and 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 fundraising and money to run an election campaign, and you need a a charismatic leader that can relate to people. Um, a, a year ago, uh, you know, we had some of those elements, um, but you know, Stephen Del Duca, for all his strengths, um, wasn't able to resonate, wasn't able to make that connection. Um, our the timing also wasn't great. You know, uh, in Ontario historically, with the exception of the Bob Ray government. Um, Ontarians tend to uh, give governments a, a second mandate. Uh, you can look back at history, um, and and the record's pretty clear. And so I think looking at the looking ahead to the twenty twenty the twenty twenty six election, 
the premier will have been in office for eight years. Um, and like with any government, there'll be barnacles and, 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 and different aspects of his, of his, of his record that, that, that people are unhappy with. We're already seeing that with the green belt, with the privatization of our healthcare, with many ethical issues that have, that, that have come to the forefront. And so I think the timing will, will be better for our party. And, um, and I think the leader, the leader is one component that is critical. And I really, when I look at all the candidates, um, in this leadership race, um, none of them compare to Bonnie Crombie. She is the only one with a strong political brand, a base of support, name recognition across the GTA, and I would argue name recognition across the province, and the only one that can go toe-to-toe with Doug Ford in an election and win. Um, and we've seen that with, we've seen her go toe-to-toe with the premier um, as it relates to, um, you know, uh, the, the issue around Mississauga and Peel. And, and we recently saw the mayor uh, secure a big win on that front. So I think her record speaks for itself. And I, I truly hope that she'll jump into the race. And and maybe an indicator of that is this, the story I, that we saw, I guess it was actually the day that she announced that she was just going to be exploring the possibility uh, immediately, uh, the Ford administration started to slam her, and you know this is what's wrong with her. This is what's wrong with her. She vacillates on this, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And and the wording around Queens Park, and I'm sure you heard it as well, is that uh, she's the last person that they want to see as the head of the uh, the Liberal Party here in Ontario. Mm-hmm. I'm not suggesting they fear her. I don't know if you actually fear political opponents like that, uh, but they'd be concerned with somebody who's uh, as strong and as experienced as that. Uh, but there's a long way to go. I mean, as we found out the last time the uh, the, uh, the Liberals went through this, uh, we, well, it, I guess the second last time when Kathleen Wynne eventually won that leadership, uh, there was a lot of jockeying and a lot of elbows in the head and everything else before people finally decided who the leader is going to be. So even if she does announce tomorrow, uh, it's it's an uphill battle yet, nonetheless, isn't it? It, you know, the party, the party, as I've said many times, uh, we we had two historic defeats where we failed to gain party status. Um, but, you know, I remain optimistic. I, I think the brand, the, the liberal brand remains strong. And, and, and there was an article in the Star about this by Martin Red Kahn. Um, when you juxtapose the the Ontario Liberal Party and the the robust leadership race we're having, you know, we'll have probably four candidates, if not more, to the Ontario NDP, they didn't even have a leadership race. Um, Merritt Stiles was the only one who officially filed her papers. And so there was no race. There were no debates. Um, and, and I think that speaks volumes about where the Ontario NDP is today. I want to see a debate. And, and, and the one thing that really, the other thing that really attracts me to, to Miss Crombie is she wants to build a big tent party where everybody is welcome. Obviously, our vote has atrophied over the past 10 years. Uh, it's why we have eight seats. It's why we garnered nearly 24% of the vote a year ago. Um, we need to return to a big tent party where we welcome people from various aspects of the political spectrum. And, and that's where I think Ford's PCs are vulnerable. Um, there are a lot of centrist voters that have that have parked their vote with Ford. Um, but I think in 2026, um, they'll be looking for an alternative. And I don't really see a compelling alternative offered by the Ontario NDP. They certainly didn't have a leadership race to actually joust on policy and what mm-hmm. they stand for. And that's what we're about to embark on on a party. We'll vote in late November and the and, and we'll announce our new leader in the first week of December. And so, as you say, the process is just starting, but we're looking ahead to an exciting upcoming six months. Andrew Perez, a senior consultant with Hill and Knowlton Strategies and a, and a volunteer, of course, for the Ontario Liberal Party as well. Uh, lots to go on this one, too. And I know a lot more discussions in the future, too. Andrew, thanks so much for this. Really appreciate the time Thank- today. 
Thanks so much, Bill. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you watch question period lately, uh, you've been turned off by it. <laughs> Join the club. A lot of people have these days. Uh, Aaron O'Toole made a speech yesterday. He's leaving Parliament, of course, retiring. And uh, one of the points that he raised in his final speech uh, was about the toxicity uh, in the dialogue and, and the atmosphere in Parliament these days, and I guess in politics in general, uh, and warned his uh, now ex-MP uh, colleagues uh, that they better get their act together because they're turning people off of politics. Uh, there was another study uh, that was done. Uh, the Canada Research Chair into Public Administration has uh, done some work on this too at the University of Moncton uh, that said, you know what, it's not just you know the, the guys across the, the, the floor there in Parliament that you could be bothering. Uh, you could be planting the seeds of dissension and maybe some very, very, you know, scary behavior by people that are going to take those words, those toxic words that you're using, uh, and come back and, and do some horrific things. We've seen that happen too many times. Uh, so the question we've got here now is, is you know, with partisan mudslinging going on on both sides of the House these days, uh, this report suggests that these MPs are actually unleashing a force that, in the report's words, that they may not be able to control. Uh, I want to talk about that with our next guest, uh, because he's been getting the pulse of what's going on in Canadian politics and how we as Canadians are responding to it for many, many years now. Uh, he is Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Polling, uh, who joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Daryl, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for this today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Bill. You and I have talked about this in the past, about the, the you know the the line that may have been crossed here from from you know partisan issues to the little barbs and some people, of course, in the history of politics have been great at that. And Churchill comes to mind, but you know even John A. and, and a bunch of others. Uh, but they seem to have dropped the bar an awful lot these days, and and it's just you know some some pretty ugly stuff that gets said there. And and I think the, the takeaway here from this report is that. Uh, that may be bad enough about what's going on in Parliament, but what impact is it having on people that may be on the fringes, may take those those comments at face value and, and act on them? I mean, that's something we're starting to see in the States, and it's it, I guess it'd be naive to suggest it's not going to happen here. Well, it's a global phenomenon. So, I mean, yeah. it's, 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 uh, it's interesting to think that there are some MPs, including Aaron O'Toole, who think that, that, you know, what's causing this is what's happening in Canadian Parliament. It's not. It's, it's, it's a global phenomenon. And you, you see this everywhere from, you know, uh, people posting things about their favorite Hollywood stars or their Hollywood stars that they don't like or music that they like or don't like or sports teams that they like or they don't like. And they, people get really emphatic about some of these things. Uh, the thing that's really changed in it all is actually something that members of parliament don't really have much control over, at least in the sort of the pre present regulatory environment. And that's what happens on social media. And, and yeah. what social media says is, does is create an environment in which you can find people, you know, as narrow as your opinion happens to be on something uh, you know, you'll find that you're not alone. There's somebody else who happens to agree with it. And there's an amplification kind of uh, process that takes place along with an organizational kind of process that takes place that probably wouldn't have happened if there was, you know, one person in Vancouver who thought this before and a, another person in St. John's and another per person in Toronto. But when that occurs, and, and you're right, I mean, this has been going on for quite some time, and, it, and it's certainly not unique to Canada or to the U.S. either. But, you, you know, you get a, a Donald Trump who's going to make uh, accusations about Hillary Clinton, for instance, and, you know, when he was running for president the first time. Uh, and he may or may not believe the stuff he's saying, but, I mean, he's doing it to pump people up. Uh, but the element uh, that, uh, that, that I guess is really starting to concern an awful lot of people is some people will take that comment, as you say, 
and run with it and and act upon it. And and you know we've seen some ugly incidents of what's going on like that. And you're you're absolutely right. Social media. Uh, is the platform for people to be able to do that. We didn't have a process where that could be done before, did we, really? No. And, and, and in fact, uh, social media has become, uh, it's it's not so much that it convinces people of things, although there, I'm sure there are some people who are convinced by what they uh, may learn on social media of thinking one thing or another. But what it does is it takes people with a predisposition to think in a certain way and give them ammunition to work with and to also give them a uh, a platform to articulate what their particular point of view is, and and also uh, an ability to attract people who have a, sim- a similar uh, point of view in a way that's way more powerful than anything that ever existed before. And it takes on a life of its own. I, I, I know, without trying to go too far back in history, uh, you know, angry citizens uh, used to have the option of writing a, a, an angry letter to the to the newspaper, to the editorial board. Uh, but you know, there were rules. You had to sign your name to it, first of all, and, and a contact number so they could get back to you. So they would actually put a name and a face to, to what's being written, or they could simply refuse to print it uh, because they say it's just too toxic and it's, you know, too incendiary. So that was there. And, and you know, somebody might have read that in the newspaper if it were printed. Somebody may not. But with social media, it's, it's basically it's a Wild West show, isn't it? I mean, the you know, the horse is out of the barn and anybody can put anything on social media. And, whoever, you know, you don't know who's going to read it. And you don't know how they're going to react to it. Yeah, exactly. But also we found that, you know, uh, there are lines that uh, people wouldn't cross before in terms of media media activity that the media is now prepared to, to cross. Uh, there are lines in terms of political expression uh, that people uh, or political behavior that people previously wouldn't cross. They're now prepared to cross them. So these uh, the, the definition of what, you know, the uh, civil space to uh, to operate in where people can get together and have a reasonable conversation about about things is becoming narrower and narrower, uh, even though our ability to communicate and talk to each other has never been bigger. So it's 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 kind of it's, it's kind of ironic in a sense. Why? What's emboldening these people, though? Well, I, th- I think what emboldens them is the reaction. Um, so if if you know that uh, you know telling speaking in a particular way attracts a certain type of audience and they cheer you on uh, just like uh, any performer who is uh, uh, who receives some sort of acknowledgement they believe that that's obviously something that's popular <laughs> and they and they just uh, you know keep going with it and in terms of uh, in terms of people who are politicians and and, uh, and and also in terms of the media I mean if you take a look at you know Fox News's ratings comparison to uh, uh, the ratings of other networks um, in, in the United States cable networks Fox traditionally outperforms them and never used to uh, the more extreme it became the more uh, the more it, uh, it outperformed its uh, its its um, its competitors and and you saw CNN and uh, MSNBC respond in kind, and they became more extreme in their particular point of view as well. So, what what's happened is the middle has dropped out of the political discourse. That that reasonable and you know John Ebbetson and I wrote a book about this called The Big Shift, in which we called it the Laurentian yeah. elite and the Laurentian consensus. We've seen no better example of what the old reasonable Canada looked like than uh, than David Johnson mm-hmm. and what he went through. Thirty years ago, that never would have happened to David Johnson. Today it happened. Why? Because the world changed, and the 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 way of that people like that think about politics and the responsibility as public officials and what their interests are and how people would look at what they're doing has changed. And and he honestly hadn't hadn't changed for it, hadn't changed as a result of it, and wasn't prepared for it, and was probably shocked by what happened. And we could tell, you know, it was 
quite offended by what happened. But you know what? That's the day-to-day life of a politician today. Well, absolutely it is. But what role do those elected officials have in in this discourse, though? When you look at what's going on, Daryl, uh, and even if they're not the perpetrators of it, nor even the authors of it, uh, do they have a role to play? Uh, you know, Because as I say, oftentimes they'll encourage those sorts of things because, as you say, if they're getting a response to it. It's like, you know, if a comedian tells a joke and people laugh, he figures, okay, that's what they want to hear. That's what I'm going to give them. Uh, And politicians will do the same thing, too. Not all of them, mind you, uh, but some will. And that really just seems to to throw gasoline under the fire, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And and there are plenty of people with lots of gas and lots of matches. Mm -hmm. And the reason they do it is because they know it works. Uh, you know, the, the point about does Donald Trump actually believe what he says? Yeah, I think an awful lot of what he says he believes. But I know that there are other things that he do does in which he's just throwing a match. Um, and But he's not alone. This is a global phenomenon. Oh, yeah. This is a global well, phenomenon. So I, I find it, you know, uh, when we talk about what's going on in, in Canada, um, in, in fact, what I see in comparison to other places uh, we're, 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 we're active in the political environment and do polling. Uh, it's it, actually Canada's quite tame. <laughs> as, as opposed to some of the fist fights we see in other parliaments, people jumping over desks at each other and, and some of the uh, hyperbole. Uh, that we're we hitting there. each other with shoes and things, but yeah. no, even, <laughs> you know, even just talking about, you know, uh, democracies as we would understand them. I mean, if you heard the political discourse that goes on in the UK or France these days, or, you know, Italy, um, or any of the, the you know countries in Europe, or saw what what happened between uh, uh, you know Bolsonaro and uh, and Lula in the Brazilian election, or mm-hmm. uh, you know any number of elections that you want to take a look at. These are hardly points of civil discourse. These are people who fundamentally disagree on what the future is going to look like, have a fundamental uh, point of view that they're they're bringing forward, and the more emphatic they are about that fundamental point of view, the non-consensus point of view, the more likely they are to attract and mobilize people who are like-minded and, 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 you know, in, in voluntary elections, it's, it's not always about convincing people that you've got the best idea. It's ba- it's mobilizing the people who are already with you and making sure that they vote. I mean, for example, we've got an election coming up in the city of Toronto right now. Does anybody yeah. really know what Olivia Chow stands for or any no. of the other candidates? Mm-hmm. Does it really know? No. So what they're out there busily doing is trying to activate that low percentage of the population that's going to participate in the election. And, and they tend to be people with more emphatic views. Is it impossible or, or maybe even worrisome uh, for elected officials to stand up against that tsunami, though? I mean, somebody would stop and put their hand up and say, no, that's that's not the way it is. I mean, the, the example always comes to mind, I guess, is John McCain uh, when he was running against Barack Obama the first time when when those two squared off. And we, I think we all remember uh, it was a town hall meeting where some lady grabbed the microphone and said, he's a Muslim. He's this, he's that. And, and he put the mic. He said, no, you're wrong. And, and basically corrected her. He's a decent man. We have different views, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I don't know if that uh, certainly she didn't want to hear that, but I don't know if, if the public wanted to hear that because uh, it's rare that an elected official will actually stand up and say, this is this is the way it is. You're wrong. Uh, you don't like to say that to, to potential voters, do you? Yeah, but some but some people will. I mean, yeah. even our prime minister from time to time, although he you know, he does disagree with them. But then he goes into exactly the same type of vitriol that the people attacking him, are, you know, mm-hmm. are, are using on him. But, uh, you know, the old. The, the way of looking at it in the past, and you know, Bill, you and I have been around this game for a long time, is at some point people would say, how dare you? And the, the answer now on the public side is, how dare you? How dare you? 
you know, I have every right to have my point of view on this. And, and you know, uh, I have a whole group of people here who are prepared to uh, line up in front of Parliament Hill and shut down the city of Ottawa because you won't listen and you treat us this particular way. Uh, now, whether you disagree with them or you don't or, or agree with them is not really the point. But people people feel that these are legitimate uh acts of political expression these days, but not just, you know, for people that you uh, disagree with, maybe in terms of the truckers, or maybe you agreed with them, but also, you know, even in terms of things like, for example, indigenous railway blockades or whatever, Mm -hmm. it's a legitimate way of kind of expressing things. And these are all manifestations of the same things. People prepared to take more extreme positions because they believe they're fundamentally right. That space for negotiation that used to exist among polite actors of both the left and the right has got narrower and narrower and the extremes have become more active in terms of the political conversation. And, you know, the left in Canada has become more left and the right in Canada has become more right. And that old Laurentian consensus that was basically driven by, you know, one fundamental aspect of Canadian uh, survival, which was keeping Quebec and the rest of the country, is no longer the animating part of what happens in politics. And as a result of that, uh, what happens is all these other things that are happening in other places start to take on an importance in our politics that they never really had before. And that's what we're seeing. So where are we heading with this? Uh, when, when you, I mean, there's a certain sense of intolerance uh, that didn't exist. Well, maybe it was there before, but it was rather latent. It's, it's overt now uh, because, as you say, it's pretty easy to find people that are going to be supportive of your views, whatever they might be. Somebody's going to come out and, and respond to a, a tweet or a, a Facebook posting or something like that. Uh, is this going to get worse before it gets better? Uh, one wonders how much worse it can get, Bill. I mean, yeah. that's, uh, but the, the the truth is, when you go out and you do surveys with people, and you know that's supposed to be my area of expertise, you actually find most Canadians are quite reasonable. Mm-hmm. So there are elements, um, you know, the echo chamber that uh, that you know repeats back your message to you that are out there, but they're not as large a, a, a segment of the population as we think. I'll give you a great example of this. Uh, so during the protests uh, against vaccinations that happened in the city of Toronto, when we were just going starting to go through those processes, there was a um, uh, a restaurant in Etobicoke uh, in which the uh, the person who was the proprietor said that he wasn't going to have masks. He was going to follow the public health rules. The police moved in. They shut him down and that kind of thing. And there was a a Mm -hmm. bunch of people that showed up and protested, a couple of hundred. Well, you know what? It's great TV. It's great radio. It's great reporting. It's great media. But this is 200 people in a city of 3 million. When you went out and you did a survey, as we did uh, at the time, how many people actually agreed with them? Well, 5%. But 5% of 3 million is still a pretty big number. (laughs) Yeah. But, but... And particularly when you concentrate them in one particular one 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 location, but it's not the majority. Most Canadians actually complied with all of that stuff and believed it was the right thing to do at the time. Now they may have some questions today, but at the time they absolutely believed it. But what got all the heat and attention from the media? That very small minority of the population who actually believe that particular point of view. And that's what we see also in the media. They tend to focus on the extremes. They tend to focus on the people who are the shoutiest. Why? Because it's good copy. It's good. It's good video. It's good radio. And they give them way bigger voice even than they would have on social media simply because they put, they decide they're going to put this on television. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not just the politicians. It's not just the political actors. It's the, it's the people who are around the the ecosystem of this that are promoting the more extreme points of view, I I believe. But when I go out and do surveys, Bill, you find most Canadians are actually pretty reasonable people. 
Uh, that's reassuring. And on that reassuring note, we'll uh, have to end it. We're just about out of time. Daryl, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this today. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Take care. Daryl Burke, the CEO of Ipsos Polling. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about a problem that we're trying to deal with here uh, in this country, and uh, it's housing. Uh, putting a roof over people's heads, which is becoming more and more problematic for a variety of reasons. It's a complex problem. Uh, and uh, with different governments at different levels have tried different solutions over the last little while. I'm not so sure uh, that they've really actually got a handle on what needs to be done. But there's an interesting piece written by our next guest that uh, that might offer an alternative and a solution to this. Uh, and it's called the 15-Minute City. Uh, it, the author of the piece is uh, Christopher Alexander. He is the president of Remax Canada. And he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Christopher, first of all, thank you so much for being with us on the program today. Uh, interesting read. Let's talk a little bit about this this whole concept of, of the 15-Minute City. Well, thanks for very, very much for having me. Um, really, at, at its essence... They are communities that have purpose-built housing that matches a variety of different um, demographics, income levels. And at the heart of it, it's having access to everything you would need uh, within 15 minutes of walking or cycling. And there are a lot of cities in Europe that are having a lot of success with this model, and we think it could could help solve a lot of our housing issues. Well, let's. I'm glad you brought the uh, the European uh, reference here too, because let's face it, a lot of those cities are a lot older than Canadian cities, and because the biggest argument about something like this is usually, well, how can we do this? I mean, you know, Toronto's already established, Hamilton, London; these are older cities. Uh, how can we, how can we retrofit these? And uh, it's it's a challenge to be sure. Uh, how do they do this? How how do they look and say, okay, here's what we got. Uh, we want to try to make it in this image or at least transform what we can of this too. Uh, how difficult is that? Well, it starts with city planning at, the, at you know at the core. And so you have to take a, a long view. And when new development projects are being proposed to accomplish the 15-minute city, they would need to incorporate a lot of the amenities that people need, schools, hospitals, parks, um, grocery stores, Anything that you would would want working to, um, you know, the the ability to come to offices or or do jobs. So it it really takes the long view, forward thinking and planning early. Uh, And political courage, I would imagine, at some point, too, doesn't it? Because not everybody's going to be on side with this. Well, (laughs) when I wrote the piece, I didn't realize there was a big um, theory behind it all that that involved government control, which I think is preposterous. But, uh, you know, there was a lot of concern around, well, this is going to limit people in in the way they uh, can move about freely. That never entered my mind when I wrote wrote this piece. Um, And I just think the quality of life that you get when everything's at your fingertips, you don't have to hop in your car every time. And a lot of our downtown communities have most of these uh, most of the 15-minute city um, premise at, at heart, but at the same time, there's still a lot of gaps. And you look at, you know, income demographics are so swayed in, in a lot of our existing communities and finding ways to have a harmonious living arrangements with um, different housing types is, is really the key. And, and if you look at, at Denmark and, and Paris, or sorry, Copenhagen and Paris, 
they've really set the bar, especially Copenhagen, for developing these harmonious communities that involve all different types of demographics. They have different demographics of housing as well. You've got, uh, you know, very expensive homes mixed in with entry level and, you know, some subsidized housing. And it seems to be working really well. And, you know, Denmark and especially Copenhagen, they all consistently rank in the top top five of uh, best quality of life cities to live in. I had a discussion with this uh, with a friend of mine who's been on local government for some time. And, you know, they, they said, well, there's going to be difficult. I'll, I'll get into the NIMBY aspect because I know you did touch on that in, in the piece as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is not a new idea, really, when you look at it, is it, uh, Christopher? Uh, I, I took a drive the other day through downtown Hamilton, through the older section uh, down in the north end and et cetera. And this whole concept is, is what a lot of those neighborhoods were designed like. I mean, you know, they didn't have huge grocery stores in those days. You'd have a corner grocerieria, uh, and you'd go and get your bread, your milk, your stuff like that. Uh, you know, and a lot of that stuff was within a few blocks of each other. Now they did do a very good job with green space in those days when they're designing those cities back in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. Uh, but they seem to understand that the, the amenities had to be close by. We kind of got away from that over the last couple of generations, haven't we? Yeah, we certainly have. And I mean, you can kind of blame that on the automobile because it was such yeah. a technological breakthrough and it allowed people to drive as far as they needed to. But in a world where, uh, you know, emissions are, are you know, being regulated, um, <clears throat> cost of fuel is going through the roof, cost of living is going through the roof. I mean, being able to take that one element out, uh, I think has a lot of potential. And you know, being able to walk to all, all the places you just mentioned or ride your bike is great. I mean, it has the opportunity to to even, you know, get people healthier. I mean, if you're used to just hopping in your car and, and not walking anywhere at the very least, like that has detrimental health effects as well. And so, you know, it, it, it really, Bill, is, is a proposed solution that we believe can work. I mean, it's already working in many European cities. And I think over the years, especially in southern Ontario, urban sprawl has been the the solution to everything. And what we're finding now, all these years later, is that it's really created a world of mass congestion, very difficult traffic situations, and a quality of life that's just so reliant on the automobile. And, and hopefully there's an opportunity to change it. And and you've seen this happen with some of those larger cities. I know, you know, you can reference the European cities because I think they're great examples but we had it here, too. I mean, you take a city as large as Toronto, uh, and you think of downtown Toronto, you're thinking, well, downtown, you're thinking around Young and Dundas and places like that. But as Toronto was growing, uh, there were a whole bunch of downtowns, weren't they, depending on which neighborhood you lived in. Uh, they, all had, they all had their own little commercial district. You know, there'd be you know, probably a clothing store or something like that, and menswear, women's wear, a couple of things like this. Uh, and we had them in Hamilton, too. There's, you know, Stony Creek downtown. There's, you know, Dundas downtown, places like that. Uh, but you're right. The automobile has, has almost, you know, uh, moved us into the idea. Well, I, I know there's that cute little shopping district there, but I'm going to go to the mega mall, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, with the, the the Costco and everything, and, and get my stuff there. Uh, and we paid a price for that, haven't we? Well, certainly. And I think it, you know, the convenience of the car has only lasted so long. And now, I think with with the population that's grown so much, especially in southern Ontario it's becoming really cumbersome to get in your car to do these things. And I just believe with more and more automobiles on the road, it, it, it's only going to get worse because we don't really have the ability to build 
uh, more roadways. And I don't, I'm not sure we even want them. I mean, who wants to look at another giant highway? And, you know, <laughs> I think people at Queens Park, they think it's a good idea, but uh, that's another story. <laughs> well, apparently that's out of the way. But um, <laughs> um, uh, I guess what I'm getting at is, is, like you mentioned, there were, there was a period in time where communities were developed with all of this in mind. And we've really gotten away from that in recent decades. And now that the world is changing again and, you know, fuel consumption is, is, is an issue. Fuel costs are an issue. Um, and just the ability for people to access things in close proximity to their homes is, is really a great opportunity for us. Uh, uh, two people that have to, or two sections of this have to play an important role here. Uh, one is going to have to be the construction industry themselves uh, who are going to do some of these builds or retrofits, I guess, depending on what part of town we're talking about here. Uh, are they of the mindset that this is a good idea, that they can use this? I mean, when we've seen new builds, of course, it's going to be a lot easier. Uh, one of our daughters, when she was going to U of T, lived in Liberty Village, uh, just down by the waterfront, close to the waterfront anyway in Toronto. And uh, it's it's a bunch of high-rise towers, condos and things of this nature. You know, And people may eschew that, but that's it's where people live in big cities. But they had a little grocery store, Sobeys on the bottom floor. Uh, the, uh, Tim Hortons. I mean, they put all those amenities in there so that you wouldn't have to walk or go or pop on a streetcar to get, you know, a cup of coffee or your groceries or whatever the case might be. So it, it as you say, it can happen, but there's got to be some advanced planning here, doesn't there? Yeah. And I think for the, the development industry, it, it's all about uh, what makes the most amount of money and with development costs, what they are, the tax structure for, for, uh, you know, developers to build condo units and, and even single family housing is, is extreme, especially in Ontario. And we need some government subsidies to encourage them to build, you know, larger units that aren't just, you know, buildings focused on one and one plus 10 units. And so that would, that would be a shift. I mean, developers will build whatever projects are going to sell at the end of the day, but the challenge they're facing is to maximize their, their dollar per square foot, they have to build these small units so they can sell more units per per tower or or community. And that's just not conducive to the needs of a growing, um, you know, greater golden horseshoe that is in desperate need of housing. Well, and the other element besides the, the construction industry itself, of course, is is the consumer, the buying public, uh, are they okay with something like this? I mean, because, you know, the, invariably you're always going to hear, you know, I don't want to live in a condo downtown. Uh, I don't want to live in a little shoebox. I want a place with a backyard. I want a place with a you know a great big park uh, across the street or whatever the case may be. And, and that's understandable. A lot of us were raised under that that that, that specter of, of what residential properties look like. Uh, but you have to ask yourself if, you know, like you say, the developer wants to do this, and if there's going to be a, a, a desire and appetite for it, they'll build it. But is there an appetite for us to grow in that fashion and, um, and and be able to withstand some of the opposition that's invariably going to come as a result of trying to plan like this? Well, I think there certainly is, but but the challenge, as I mentioned, is the the, it's the, prof, the only profitable model seems to be small units, and we need to find if. if Developers could build and profit from three-bedroom condos that you know had larger footprints. Uh, I think you would see a lot of families consider that option. I mean, especially when 
you know, the, the single family home, if it's still the dream, the detached house, you know, it's become so unaffordable and expensive. And so you're going further and further away from any kind of urban center to, to achieve that dream. And if you could offer people the quality of life in a, in a condo unit that allowed them to have a couple of kids and maybe a guest bedroom, I think a lot of people would go for that option if it was in a great neighborhood. And and a properly planned neighborhood. But we seem to have got that message too, haven't we? Uh, I know that even if we're doing residential planning now, I mean, we plan for green space. We plan for, for bike paths, if not on the roads. I mean, some of the green spaces and, and walking trails and things of this nature. So we, we seem to have received that part of the message. Uh, but now we have to, I guess, concentrate on, you know, the, the, the kind of units that we're actually building. Absolutely. And that's kind of the heart of the the strategy on the 15 minute city. It's not just building, you know, really expensive single family homes. It's incorporating a variety of different units that includes a lot of affordable housing. And it creates this kind of community that is harmonious amongst different demographics and and class groups, I guess, um, to label them that way. So, you know, I think I think a good example of what can happen yeah, without or, or w- without the 15 city in mind is probably like a Mississauga. I mean, for mm-hmm. decades, they were just growing and growing uh, outwards and outwards. You know, if you drive through Mississauga, they've got massive roadways. And uh, there's there's outside of Port Credit and a few other small communities, there's no real downtown. I mean, they're trying really hard now with square one. But you got to drive everywhere in Mississauga. And I think that's a challenge in, in numerous ways. Yeah. I mean, Calgary is a great example of that, too. I mean, it's, it's almost as if they looked out there and said, look at all that land out there, that prayer that we can just keep spreading out there. And no, you can't. Uh, and yes. I think we're getting that. Uh, it's an interesting concept. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to be fascinated to see just how city councils and town councils uh, respond to this and, and if they're going to use this, because I think they can and should as an effective tool. Uh, so if if the uh, the motive here was to, to generate a conversation about this, Christopher, uh, check that box. I think you've done that. And here's hoping that uh, that some people are going to actually take this into consideration and when we start planning. Thanks for this today. Really appreciate the conversation. Oh, thanks very much for having me, Bill. And we're, we've really taken a deep dive on it, and we can expect to release more uh, concepts aligned with 15-minute cities in the coming weeks. So thanks again for having me. Excellent. Oh, that means further conversations then. Look forward to those too. Take care now. You too. It's, Take uh, care. Christopher Alexander, the president of REMAX Canada, with his concept uh, about how we can grow. That's an uh, interesting idea that uh, the town planners and city councils have to, to be cognizant of. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.